Welcome to History Conspiracy Podcast, where we provide the audio and you decide whether it's history or conspiracy. If you would like to support this podcast, you can go to paypal.com and donate any amount to History Conspiracy Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. Stephen O'Brien, pilot for the Minnesota Air National Guard, was flying a routine mission, dropping off supplies in the Caribbean and flying back to Minnesota across the United States. September 11th, 2001. Here he is checking in with air traffic control. Okay, that was weak. Was that Gopher 06? Yes, sir. Gopher 06, level link. 240. Gopher 06, Cleveland Center. Good morning, No, sorry, sir. I, you're right. Number five ten whiskey. Welcome to Cleveland Center. Within a few minutes, the next time Stephen O'Brien spoke with air traffic control, it is estimated this was the time when United ninety three made its impact with the ground. His call sign on the radio was Gopher 06. Gopher 06 again. I've lost the target on him, and to be safe, I'm going to run you north about 25 miles before I put you back on course. And this is a, that track on the 30 heading is away from the direction I last had him uh, proceeding. You say black smoke in sight? That's where I'm in a black smoke. It's not a cloud. It's black smoke, sir. Okay. okay, is that smoke on the ground, you say, coming off the ground? Well, it looks like it's suspended in the air, sir. Uh, looks like it's at the same level as the scattered clouds. I guess it to be about uh, three to 5,000 feet in the air. I can't tell if it's coming up out of the flow right now, but there is a uh, round cloud of black smoke. Okay, that would be just about right. From what I was showing before, it would be at your 9 o'clock, and I'm going to guess about uh, 17 or 18 miles. Okay, that, uh, that check was go for a zero six, sir. Uh, it's hard to tell if that smoke is originating on the ground or if it just happened in midair. Go for a zero six, that would be about the right location. You're clear, direct dryer. Okay, direct dryer, go for a zero six. Johnstown? Tower. Yeah. When he goes over to tower. Okay. 
Yeah, go ahead. This is Imperial Gopher 06. Uh -huh. If I can, I'm going to take him down towards that reported smoke area. I, I just got it, Bill. I have it. I have the a guy right over it right now. You oh. can do what you want, but I have a guy down there at 5,000 feet over fluid. We got the lat longs and Is everything. That was that and a report. That was the United States. He sees smoke and he doesn't see flames. He sees smoke and... Did you bring everything down? Okay, okay I got positive it. ID. All right. right. In the last clip we will play... From September 11th, 2001, Gopher 06 is one of the last planes in the sky. Gopher 06, I probably shouldn't ask, and you probably can't answer, but what are you doing in the air right now? Well, sir, uh, nobody has asked us to uh, land at this time, but if, uh, if that's what we need to do, we're prepared to do it. Now nobody's told me I to put you down. I put everybody else on the ground. I was just curious, and then you know, like I said, I'm not even sure I should ask that. Here's the complete recording of Stephen O'Brien, Gopher 06, before the official September 11th investigation committee. Um, how about Colonel Mahina? You have me loud and clear? Okay, I under we understand the problem, and that was part of. Uh, Part of the uh, background I was I was going into is that Lisa and I are two members of the team that's looking at events of uh, the day of 911, and we're part of a staff of about 80 people found out throughout government, and that really brings us here today to talk to you, Colonel O'Brien. And because we are collecting so much information, the wide variety of people we're talking to, our commissioners have asked that we record our interviews as we move along, and with your permission, we'd like to record the session today. Uh, that's fine with me. Okay. Okay. And uh, for the record, uh, we'll get to everybody's names. I'm uh, Mr. Miles Kara, 911 Commission. Lisa Sullivan, 911 Commission. John Anazi, Air Force General Counsel. Colonel Mahaney, go ahead. Lieutenant Colonel Paul Mahaney, Staff Judge Advocate, 133rd Airlift Wing. And Lieutenant Colonel Steve O'Brien, 133rd Airlift Wing, is also with you. Uh, Colonel O'Brien, let me uh, just start with maybe a couple of sentences on your your uh, resume. How long you've been on uh, uh, a member of the Department of Defense and your position you held on 911? Uh, I've been with the Minnesota Air National Guard since December of 1976, and the position I held uh, on 911, I was the aircraft commander of Gopher 06. I was also uh, my full-time position here on my. Uh, a technician, uh, federal civil service employee, and I was the um, chief of staff at that time as well. And uh, for the record, 
I naively assume gopher was spelled G-O-P-H-E-R, but I find that may not be so. How is it spelled? It's spelled uh, G-O-F-E-R. Even though it's from Minnesota, we're going to do it that way, I guess. Correct. Uh, they can only give us uh, five digits in the uh, prefix of our call sign, so we were limited to the F as opposed to the PH. And Colonel O'Brien, um, as we briefly discussed on the secure line, we're going to conduct this unclassified today. If at any point you feel that we are reverging on classified information, please let me know. And my reason for uh, my, my my background for determining that we can talk unclassified is that we hold uh, the air traffic uh, system transcripts of that day. We hold the radar of that day, all of which is unclassified. And we also understand, Colonel Bryan, and correct me if I'm wrong, you did an unclassified interview with the Department of Defense historian. Is that correct? Uh, actually, I did the interview not with a historian, but uh, uh, I did it with, uh, and I, forgive me for not knowing which one, it was one of the uh, cable channels, either the Learning Channel or Discovery Channel, and that was after I was contacted by uh, Public Affairs. Uh, I believe it was the uh, uh, Department of the Air Force Public Affairs that contacted me and said they had a request to uh, do some uh, research for especially they were doing on the Pentagon and had cleared it through their uh, staff and they said as long as I didn't have a problem with it, they were okay with me uh, conducting an interview with them. And since then I've also done an interview with uh, the Minneapolis Star Tribune, which is a local newspaper here. Uh, strictly from uh, how did it affect uh, local people as far as 911 is concerned. And just about a week or two ago, I got the request to do uh, an interview with a uh, local uh, public radio station. Uh, Minnesota Public Radio was doing a follow-up on that, and uh, they just did a real basic interview on, on uh, the incidents that happened that day. On that basis, then, let's proceed unclassified, and again, with the caveat, if you understand that we're going to talk about anything classified, uh, please uh, let me know and we'll adjust accordingly here. And according to the mission debrief, Colonel, you were in uh, Washington, D.C. to simply, you were going to ferry some cargo back to, Minis uh, to Minneapolis, is that correct? That's affirmative. Uh, we had uh, been on a guard lift mission down in the Virgin Islands prior to that, and uh, as an add-on to that mission, we were supposed to pick up some parts uh, that were supposed to be waiting for us at Andrews Air Force Base. Uh, subsequently, after a few phone calls that morning, we found out that the parts had possibly wound up at Dover Air Force Base, but they couldn't uh, verify that for sure. So at that point, our command control at Minneapolis uh, suggested that we just uh, come on home. And so we spent uh, the evening of the 10th of September at uh, Andrews Air Force Base, our landing our remaining overnight, and then uh, was scheduled to fly home on the 11th from uh, Andrews. And do you recall what your original flight plan time of uh, departure was when you uh, first decided to come back? Well, I believe we were scheduled for a 10 o'clock departure, um, as you know, the mission was fragged. This was before we left Minneapolis on our uh, the first day of the trip. And after uh, the determination was made that we weren't sure where the cargo was, at that point they cleared us to come home whenever we were ready. And so we really didn't you know, try and make a hard takeoff time. It was just whenever we could get the airplane ready and get the flight plan filed and weather briefed and, and all that, we were going to head home. And so I believe we uh, eventually got off at uh, about 9.30 local time uh, Eastern. Okay. And what uh, model C-130 were you flying? We fly a uh, C-130 H-3. And how is that? Uh, 
does that model, the H3, uh, do you carry any armament on it at all? Uh, no, we don't have any armament on the uh, H3 at all. We do have some defensive systems. Uh, we have the capability of uh, chaff and flares. Uh, none were loaded up that day. And uh, the C-130 H3, is, is it, does the, does the H series have an armed model at all? I'm not aware of any armed H model uh, C-130s. I believe all the gunships are previous models to the H. And it's fair to say then, if you were not carrying any armament that day, there's no way that uh, Gopher C-130 that you were flying, uh, C-130 H-3 model, engaged either American 77 or United 93 that day. Uh, no, there was no way we would have had any way of engaging those aircraft. Nor, as one of the popular myths out there on the fringes has you firing a missile into the Pentagon, you had no capability to do that either. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. Okay. I just and, and the reason I ask those questions, simply put, is to get that on the record up front so that we can. Uh, uh, we're working, uh, Colonel O'Brien, to tell the story of 911 as accurately as we possibly can. And that involves us talking to controllers, uh, to pilots, to anybody else that was all involved that day. And we're trying to understand the events of that day almost as if we had uh, been in their seat that day. So that will explain some of the questions that I'm going to ask you. Um, and what was your situational awareness of the events in New York uh, before you took off? We had uh, no uh, knowledge of anything that had taken place in New York. Uh, the first time we knew anything about the events that took place in New York were uh, as we were departing the Washington, D.C. area. It was a frustrating uh, feeling because uh, we felt like we would have been in uh, in a better position to uh, orbit over the Pentagon and possibly help out with any kind of rescue effort, just from a bird's eye view of maybe uh, telling them what was happening uh, traffic-wise or, or where they could possibly you know, affect the best uh, rescue effort. And when they asked us to uh, depart the area there, the first thing I did was to uh, direct one of the crew members to get on one of our navigational radios. It's called the, uh, an ADF radio, and it shares the same frequency spectrum as AM radio stations. And so we attempted to get a uh, Washington, D.C. radio station on that radio to learn more about what was going on behind us. And the first thing we heard when we got the, uh, to my recollection, the first thing we heard when we got that ADF radio tuned up was that the second aircraft had impacted the uh, World Trade Center, or at least a aircraft had, had impacted on the German second one. And as soon as we heard that, we knew that, well, I shouldn't say we knew, but it, our suspicions were that this was bigger than just And that was when you were in the air that you heard that? That's correct. Okay. And on the ground, and Colonel, we pulled uh, your flight strips from uh, Andrews Tower, and we've got two flight strips on you. And the first one is at 1330, 9.30 uh, Eastern Daylight Time. And we believe that that was your original takeoff schedule, which was uh, entered into the flight data system. And then later we have a... Uh, a second flight strip, which is 1333, and we believe that to be the flight strip that was executed when you actually went wheels up. And that seems to correspond with your recollection that you're off at about 931. Correct. And what I'd like to do now uh, for you, Colonel, is start playing some of the um, tapes we have from the air traffic control system. And the purpose of the first uh, segment 
is to show that while you were on the ground at Andrews, you were actually delayed for a couple of reasons as, as you took off and you actually got off just a little bit later than you might have otherwise. So let me play that first segment and uh, I've got the I've got the recorder with the segment on it close to the telephone and hopefully you can pick it up at your end. So let's try it. I'll play it through until uh, you're off the ground at Andrews and then we'll stop and chat about that briefly. So here we go. Is that all right, Colonel O'Brien? Uh, yes, I did. Some of it was a little garbled, but I got the gist of it. Right. And uh, you recall those conversations? Uh, yes, I do. It's the first time I've heard them, and uh, it's somewhat eerie to hear them again after all this time. And it's a little bit eerie in that the time frame we're talking about, Colonel. Um, and I don't know if you've had a chance to think about this, and my apologies if it causes you to, 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 to think in an emotional area, but. Uh, had you not been delayed for three minutes, you would have been uh, out there in the flight path of American 77, as it turns out. And uh, we know at that time you had no situational awareness that uh, 77 was out there when you took off. Is that correct? That's correct. And the reason that you were delayed, uh, there's at least two, perhaps three reasons in there. And uh, let me recount them as I understand it, and if that's not correct, let me know. Uh, you were first held because of the uh, weight turbulence for a 7-4 heavy that was going off. That was one of the kneecap aircraft. I think you were held briefly a second time because of a grass cutter. I'm not sure on that. And then third, there was a helicopter that was coming across and you were held up for that. Does that square with what you remember? That's from, uh, if you'd like, I could elaborate a little bit on the 747, but uh, that's yes. correct. Yeah, would you please? Well, uh, my recollections on the 747 and I remarked uh, to the crew while we were starting our engines was I remember the uh, 747 uh, cranking up. We were facing uh, them. We were headed, or our aircraft was uh, pointed southbound towards where they keep the 747, Air Force One, and, and the other aircraft. And uh, I'd remarked to the crew that I thought it was uh, unusual that that 747 had gotten started up and it departed in a fairly short uh, uh, time span. I don't remember the exact time, but I know that example for our aircraft with four engines to start uh, typically under normal circumstances it might take us 
15 minutes or so to get all the engines started, all the checklists accomplished before we're ready to, to taxi. And uh, it seemed like this aircraft had departed a lot quicker than that, but not knowing anything else that was going on. And, you know, just remarked to him that, boy, that airplane got off fairly quickly. Uh, do you recall that he got priority over you? Were you held up so that he could go first or uh, or not? No, I don't recall uh, any priority like, you know, uh, when we called for a taxi. I don't recall any uh, delays. Um, you know, you have to stand by and wait for the 747. It may have happened, but I don't recall that being any kind of conflict at all. It was just a matter of, um, you know, I think we maybe both started the starting engine sequence at about the same time. Uh, it's just a guess because they don't have any propellers like we have, but uh, it seemed like they had gotten off uh, much sooner than, you know, a normal uh, 747 engine start taxi and departure would be. And that's normal to hold up for turbulence that they cause when they take off? That's correct. There is a uh, weak turbulence uh, separation criteria that are effect, uh, in effect, um, and they just hold us until they feel that the weak turbulence from the departing from the aircraft is dissipated enough to make it safe for departure. Okay, the next segment I'm going to play for you, Colonel, is uh, I'm simply going to play it to see if you remember hearing it. It is not directed at you, but it is uh, a conversation that occurs in the air between one of the two towers and another plane that's in the sky. We'll just pick up where we left off. Yeah. Uh, no, we're hold on. Yeah. How do I get back to where I was? There we go. I'm going to go up to right here. hearing anything like that while you're on the ground, Colonel O'Brien? Uh, no, I don't. And, and you might have heard in the background uh, Andrew's calling for another release. That was the release on you. So this conversation was going on in the air. And, and I think that's Andrew, uh, excuse me, I think that's National Tower and there was no reason for you to be on their frequency at that time. And I just played that for you so you've got the situational awareness as we now uh, get you up in the air here. Let me continue playing. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Go for 06 on the team 4000. 
and I forgot to tell you that at the beginning. I have uh, voice-activated tape this, so there are uh, the gaps that uh, were there uh, have I've been taken out, and this is not in real time. Okay, I understand. And uh, you <laughs> took you a while to get uh, the tower to understand that you really weren't go for 86 and you were go for 06. Uh, yeah, that happens uh, once in a while. It's, you know, not common, but it happens. Yeah. So you just try and make sure that you correct them. Know, standard procedure to, to make sure that there aren't any confusions because sometimes there's similar call signs either the suffixes are very close or the prefixes are close and so in case there was another 86 aircraft out there I didn't want them to uh, confuse us with them so consequently I'm a little bit stubborn and, and try and uh, make sure that they've got the right call signs. And, and we appreciate that and just for your situational awareness you might have heard uh, in the background you're on with Tyson at um, National Tower and in the background you might have heard Cramp position, uh, and they just become aware that they have a fast-moving aircraft. So that's going on in the background, and uh, they become aware in real time that they actually have a military aircraft up there that they could uh, that they could divert, and that's in fact what they did. And let me just continue this segment, and then we can talk about it.
Go for zero six, maintain one seven thousand, and contact Dulles on one two three point eight. You call that girl? Uh, yeah, I do. Yes, Sarah, I do. And uh, uh, one clarification, I would ask. You make a report that the aircraft is down, and then later you say it's into the Pentagon. When you use the phrase down there, you mean down on the ground. Is that correct? That's affirmative. Um, I had, uh, probably should have used some other terminology other than down, but uh, that was the first thing that came to mind. I witnessed a, uh, an aircraft crash. When I was back, when I was in pilot training, one of my classmates crashed in front of me on, uh, on final, and uh, so I, I had seen that signature fireball and smoke plume come up once before from uh, you know a jet fuel explosion like that and, and uh, I don't think it happened quite that quickly as far as you know you do had mentioned something about how you've got the tape uh, time sequence off just a little bit but I recall there being you know a little bit of a delay from the first time that we reported uh, the aircraft to the time that I reported the aircraft it was down. And what I did, Colonel, is I compressed about three minutes of audio down into the segment that you heard here. And that's why I wanted to make you aware that uh, you're not hearing it in real time. I just simply did that in the interest of time. When you identified the plane as a 757, did you have any indication at all of the company? Um, no, I didn't at the time. And I remember when I uh, debriefed with the folks in uh, Youngstown, Ohio, that I was not able to really give them a... Uh, commercial carrier or anything. The aircraft was, was banked up, <clears throat> I recall, uh, quite a bit steeper than what your uh, typical aircraft, uh, commercial airliner uh, banks uh, for a turn. Uh, I want to say it was between 30 and 45 degrees of bank, and consequently when he went by us at our 12 o'clock and, and passing through our 1 to 2 o'clock position, we were pretty much looking at the top of the airplane. And so I remember seeing uh, what appeared to be almost like a red stripe at the root the wing run of the, uh, that'd be the right wing, I guess, as they were passing by us. And, and in hindsight, I realized now that that was probably the, um, the American Airlines, you know, their signature paint job that they have along the windows probably reflecting off the wing. But all I remember is seeing on the silver 757 at that point. And I believe that's the way I debriefed it with the Intel folks at, uh, at Youngstown initially as well. And it, it was clear to you that that was a 75 as opposed to either a 76 or a 73? It was definitely uh, 7576. Those two aircraft were were uh, close enough, I guess. The models are close enough. 76, obviously, you know, it's a little bit bigger than the 757, but they're uh, fairly close in size. And uh, I guess I was correct in my initial um, assumption when uh, ATC had asked me what type of aircraft that was. Uh, subsequently, when I debriefed with the folks at Youngstown, I, uh, you know, well, I'm not quite sure. It was a 757, possibly a 767, but I guess my initial uh, recognition of the aircraft in conversing with ATC was correct, but it was a 757. And it's quite clear to us as we listen to these tapes that you, you gave a clear identification of the type aircraft to air traffic control in, in their real time. And as you're probably well aware in, in the news, it doesn't get sorted out nearly as fast as you had it sorted out for air traffic control. And the question we have is, were you on the air with anybody else at that time? Were you with the military controller of any sort or talking to the military? Uh, no, we weren't. Uh, sometimes we are. Uh, we have our radios tuned up to the command post that we just departed. 
in order to give them a, uh, a departure call so that they can uh, plug it into the command control system for the military, and that just updates our time so that the folks uh, at our home station will have a better idea of uh, you know when to expect us for arrival. But we were not conversing with Andrews Command Post at that time. Though. And the so the the only military entity you would have been in contact with normally would have been a command post. In this case, Andrews, and it was the case on that morning that you were not on freak with the Andrews command post? Uh, no, we weren't, we weren't conversing with it at the time, and I really can't recall whether or not we had made an off-call to uh, Andrews command post. Things were uh, happening fairly quickly, and, and any time you're operating an aircraft in the, uh, the uh, Andrews area, uh, you've got a number of airports there, things are real, real busy, and, and my assumption is that we probably hadn't even initiated our off-call with command post just because uh, things are a little bit more saturated as far as ATC calls and, and directions. It being a, a fairly busy environment there around Washington, D.C., you really have to listen up on the radios and, and uh, not miss any uh, calls yourself because they, they're typically stepping you up in altitude only 1,000 to 2,000 feet at a time and giving you fairly precise vectors to uh, keep all the traffic separated. And when you say off-call, what does that mean? Uh, departure call. Departure. Oh, okay, I got it. Uh, and the uh, departure call occurs back to the base command post. Uh, could have been done, but was not. That's that's to the best of my recollection. Yeah. I don't recall. Uh, a lot of times when we have a navigator on board, uh, we'll delegate that to the navigator and let him make our uh, departure call back to the command post so they can update the system. And I, I'm sorry, I really don't recall whether or not uh, Colonel DeVito had made that call or not. Uh, I would have, I know, uh, the way I run things on an airplane, I would have delegated that to the navigator just because it is a busy area and it was the co-pilot's leg that day. So even though I was in the left seat of the aircraft commander, I was uh, working the ATC radios that day and, and I'm sure I would have delegated the, the UHF radio, which we used to stay in contact with the uh, military command post to the uh, navigator. So. And that was Colonel DeVito? That's correct. Uh, what's his first name? Uh, Joseph. Joseph. And is, uh, is that Lieutenant Colonel or Colonel? Uh, he's a Lieutenant Colonel. Lieutenant Colonel. And what, um, as you think back on that, what other traffic was there in the area that day that you can recall? You know, I don't recall. I'm sure there was other traffic, but uh, I don't recall any other traffic. I mean, it's just a very busy uh, environment, and to see, you know, traffic out there and to notice everything that's in the area would keep you busier than you'd want to be, uh, especially when you're uh, trying to listen up on the radios for ATC calls and all that. Of course, we're, we're looking at things, but we're not commenting and I'm not, you know, registering and recording those things in my mind as far as it would be unusual to see four or five different airplanes in that environment there. And so you're, uh, for the most part, just clearing the area in front of you. And, and uh, of course, we've got a, a, what we call a TCAS. It's a, uh, uh, what should I say, it's a, a piece of equipment that allows us to identify other aircraft out there that have transponder codes and uh, between uh, clearing out visually and using the uh, TCAS equipment that we've got in the aircraft and then looking up on ATC, that's how we basically clear uh, mm -hmm. other aircraft that might be in our place. And the only traffic that was of concern to you for safety or spacing reason was the traffic that was pointed out to you? That's correct. And I had, uh, to the best of my recollection, I had noticed him before the ATC call uh, I believe I first saw him at about my 10 o'clock position, and then when uh, the uh, controller pointed the traffic out to us on the radios, um, it was it was a uh, fairly obvious, you know, what airplane they were talking about, and it was 
in some respects it sounded, uh, uh, what should I say, kind of incredulous that we wouldn't have seen that airplane because he was as close as he was to us. Right. Uh, the, the next surprise to us was when he, he asked us to identify the airplane because typically ATC knows more about the aircraft than, than you do as far as, you know, they've got an individual strip on, on each aircraft uh, that identifies their qualifying the type aircraft and probably the, the type carrier that, uh, or the name of the carrier that's operating that airplane and so on and so forth. So when he asked us what kind of airplane it was, uh, it was a very unusual uh, request. And uh, based on our review of the radar and the air traffic control tapes and any other information we can get our hands on, uh, the only other aircraft that we're aware of that day that you, that you may have been aware of, uh, either visually or in the radar, first of all, uh, did you see uh, Word 31, the 74 out in front of you? I don't recall that aircraft, I'm sorry. And uh, there was a helicopter that took off from the Pentagon oh, a, a few minutes before you came across the Potomac, and he was headed northbound. Now, do you recall seeing a helicopter in the area? Uh, no, I don't. And then the only other two uh, airplanes that uh, I'm aware of that are of interest, there were two Botcats, and I think those were Air Force executives just out of Dover. Uh, but they were well at altitude. They were 17 and 21,000 uh, on top of you. Now, you recall... Uh, either talking to them or being aware of them at all? No, we were not. We were certainly not in communication with them. And, uh, uh, we didn't recognize, or I should say we didn't recognize them, but we didn't see them as a crew uh, being down at uh, 3,000 feet or so. We would, our scan wouldn't have uh, gone up that high. And then as you, uh, you were, how many minutes or miles were you behind the plane as you followed it? Uh, behind 77? Oh, behind flight 77? Yeah. Um, it, there was a delay from the time that they asked us or, or I offered to them, um, you know, the aircraft rolling out on a northeasterly heading and still in a descent. I'm not sure how long of a time frame that was, but uh, as fast as that airplane was going, I'm sure there was uh, quite a bit of separation that took place between us and that aircraft before they uh, then asked us to, to turn and follow that aircraft. And I remember, uh, vaguely remember trying to keep the aircraft in sight and uh, every once in a while we would get a glint off of a wingtip or whatever, but it was early in the morning, like I said, approximately 9.30, 40 or so. sun was uh, still somewhat low on the, on the horizon. And uh, with the East Coast typically being hazy with just moisture and, and uh, pollutants and things like that, it becomes a little bit more difficult when you're looking for other traffic eastbound, you know, looking at, or I'm sorry, not eastbound, but when you're looking towards the east and looking for traffic through the sun, the haze, it becomes difficult. And so we were really straining to keep that airplane in sight until the uh, impact on the ground there. So it became obvious where the aircraft was again. And we have the, the radar reduction files from the 84th Radar Evaluation Squadron at Hill Air Force Base, and it looks to us as, as uh, we analyze that data that it looks like you were about two minutes behind uh, the aircraft. Uh, when, when you were able to make your turn and come in vector behind, it looks like you were about two minutes behind. And I just point that out to you so you'd be aware of it. Okay. And then uh, you asked to orbit the Pentagon, as I recall, but you were called off of that. Could you walk us through that for a minute or so? Well, initially they gave us that heading to 270, and um, I can't remember exactly when I took the aircraft from the co-pilot, but I, I believe it was after that instruction. Uh, we were getting closer and closer to the Pentagon, and I could see that um, the vector they were giving us could possibly take us through the, uh, 
the plume of smoke that was coming up from the Pentagon. And for whatever reason, I still didn't know anything about the uh, the aircraft impacting the World Trade Center, but um, it was uh, somewhat uh, obvious to me that any uh, pilot worth his salt would not have uh, taken a disabled airplane into the Pentagon. And so right away, my suspicions began to uh, you know rise that this is uh, possibly a, a uh, deliberate act and not knowing you know, what might be coming up in that smoke, whether or not they had any kind of uh, nuclear, biological, or anything like that on board the airplane for a terrorist incident like that. I thought it was probably not a good idea to, to fly through that plume of smoke coming up from the Pentagon. And so I believe that's when the notion came to me that I should really take the airplane. And taking the airplane, I realized at that point I was going to have to turn back to the right a little bit. We were heading approximately 090, uh, you know, heading, still heading towards the Pentagon when we got that request from our direction from ATC to turn to a 270 heading. At that point, I made a decision that we were going to turn a little bit to the south and basically enter a, a left-hand orbit around the Pentagon, around the east side of the Pentagon, which would keep it on my side of the airplane. Uh, I thought that was best, even though I was flying the airplane now. And then I thought, you know, about possibly trying to set up an orbit around the, uh, the Pentagon to affect some kind of uh, rescue attempt or whatever. And, uh, or help out with any other information that I could possibly give from a bird's eye view there. And uh, they were fairly emphatic about having us uh, depart the area there and hit 270 and uh, climb an altitude. So at that point, I thought I'm not going to argue with ATC with the follow their direction. And uh, go ahead with uh, whatever they wanted us to do. And for those of us that are not pilots or rated, you know, when you say your side, is that the right side or the left side of the aircraft? It's the left side of the aircraft. Left side. And in the time you were in the vicinity of the Pentagon, and this is around 9.40 Eastern Daylight Time, were you aware of or did you see any fighter aircraft or other military aircraft? Uh, no, no, we weren't aware of any fighter aircraft. Okay. And then uh, you proceed on your way, uh, heading a 310 eventually, and you're headed up uh, towards uh, uh, Pennsylvania. And I'd just like to play a little more audio for you. And what we have is uh, while the Tyson position is vectoring you, as we just learned, uh, the Krant position, on the other hand, is picking up situational awareness. And a little bit of that was in the background, but I'd just like to play for you. Uh, the other side of the conversations that were going on in the tower that day. So if you bear with me a minute. Should be able to start it up. Okay, I'll proceed to Rick Richmond, Venus 7-7. This is Senator Rick Richmond. 
Okay, let me uh, stop it there, uh, Colonel. That was the other side. What you heard in the background is uh, a, a voice, a female voice said, National Anybody. That was the first identification of a fast-moving aircraft approaching the D.C. area, and that was at about 9.33, and that's just about at the time uh, you took off. So we have Dulles reporting at the National Tower, and at the same time they're lifting you up, and we got <laughs> both planes, if you will, coming uh, towards the D.C. area or towards the Pentagon area from uh, different directions. At one point, and I, and I don't think you heard it, but the, uh, the original point out on the 757 uh, voice in the background says, oh, you mean that gopher guy? And he says, no, no, it's, uh, it's the, the, the luck, the point out that I gave you. Uh, either that day or, or afterwards, were you aware of any of that uh, uh, juxtaposition of your flight with the fast-moving aircraft coming in back? When you're referring to the fast-moving aircraft, are you referring to Flight 77? That's correct. It's not known. No one knows that it's 77. So when uh, Dulles first gives that point out out there, uh, they pick up a primary only coming in, and uh, that's how it's announced uh, over the air traffic network. Okay. No, I was not aware of uh, that fast-moving aircraft. And like I said earlier, I believe I had first picked the airplane up, and I'm guessing we were, uh, I think, still at 3,000 feet, maybe just had been cleared up to 4,000 feet um, when I noticed the airplane. And he was up a little bit higher than us at that point. But then when uh, ATC asked us again if we had the aircraft in sight, he had uh, continued his descent down and was in a fairly, uh, like I said, steep bank turn to the right uh, at about our 12 o'clock position at about the same altitude, and I was saying it was about 3,500 feet or so. And as you may have heard, shortly after uh, you reported the Pentagon crash and it became aware there was a ground stop in the D.C. area. Uh, and had you been further delayed until after that, uh, you wouldn't have got off the ground. Did you, did I understand you, that. So. Did you hear that ground stop come out over the frequency? You know, I don't recall hearing a ground stop per se uh, over the frequency. If I did, uh, it's been so long that, you know, that memory has faded. There's only certain things that I... I really uh, stick out vividly in my mind. Let's pick you up now on the uh, 310 leg. And at some point in time, you are made aware of another situation that's developed. And I don't have the uh, tapes with me from uh, Cleveland Center, who I believe was talking to you. But what do you recall? I don't have any more tapes. Oh. Uh, what do you recall about the uh, the second event that day? Well, uh, the second event, I had asked the crew if everyone was okay to uh, continue on. This was after the uh, witnessing the crash of the Pentagon. All the crew members came back and reported that they were okay to, to press on. And that was my biggest concern at that point was how's everyone doing. Um, so we decided to uh, continue on back to Minneapolis. We've been handed off from uh, departure control to um, center, and I believe it was the uh, first center controller, Cleveland Center, uh, who had pointed out traffic to us at our 12 o'clock, couldn't give us an altitude, and so we did our normal scan looking for traffic, go altitude first, and then, you know, increasing above and below, 
we uh, really couldn't pick anything out uh, as far as you know the traffic was concerned. And at that point, reported back to him that we didn't have any traffic in sight. So he gave us a, a vector on Front 360, basically a right 90-degree turn to uh, head us to the north to uh, deconflict us. Uh, should that traffic, you know, happen to be at our altitude, it was shortly after we rolled out of the turn that another crew member, a loadmaster in the back of the airplane, reported seeing some smoke off the left-hand side of the aircraft. And I turned and looked right away and saw the, you know, the black smoke coming up from the ground. And this one wasn't uh, right after the impact, so I personally I didn't see any picture, you know, red, yellow plume of flame or anything like that. All I saw was smoke coming up from the ground, and uh, at that point I reported that smoke to the center, even in approximate position, you know, told him I didn't it was about 20 miles away, and, and I think he came back uh, and replied that he had lost the traffic, that he was pointing out to us at about 17 or 18 miles, the two were close enough that uh, I was sure that, you know, what he was pointing out to us possibly could be related to that smoke coming up. We have you from the 84th Radar Evaluation Squadron. Uh, air traffic was accurate. The inbound path of the primary only, which we now know to be United 93, was, was actually 12 o'clock. Uh, it crashes near Shanksville, Pennsylvania at 10.03, and at about that time, I have you on the radar evaluation uh, reduction. Uh, it's just crossing from Maryland into the, uh, <coughs> that narrow projection of West Virginia, and, and you're not quite in Pennsylvania yet. And, and at, at that point that you're vectored 90 degrees to the right, was that when you were 40 miles away or was it further up? Uh, no, it was about 20 miles away was my estimate that uh, we saw this smoke. And that was just a, a rough uh, guess on my part uh, that when I uh, reported back to Cleveland Center and told them that we had smoke coming up from the ground, I estimated to be about 20 miles. No. Off, off the port side, right? Uh, that's correct, off the left wing, yep. our 95 position. Uh, we have, he vectored you at about 10.04, he vectored you 90 to the right, and then at 10.07, the controller brought you back again on course at about 10.07. That's about four minutes after uh, the impact of United 93 into the ground. Uh, what was your awareness of other aircraft in the sky? Well, um, the only thing I saw that I, you know, vaguely remember, and I, I uh, didn't know if there was any significance at all, but I saw a, a smaller white aircraft. Uh, at a lower altitude, and, and we were up high enough that it would have been difficult for me to, you know, give an exact altitude. But if I had to guess right now, um, trying to remember what it looked like, I'd say it was, you know, below 10,000 feet, possibly down around five or 6,000 feet. And if I remember correctly, it looked like a white business jet, and uh, I believe it was northbound when I saw it, but that was the only other traffic that I recall seeing in the area besides the, uh, you know, the smoke pool coming up. Let me let me come back to that business jet in a moment, but uh, let, let me just simply ask you: Do you recall seeing any any fighter aircraft or any other military aircraft in the vicinity or on your flight path that day? No, I don't. Okay, and I appreciate that. That's, that's helpful to us that that you have that that uh, good recall. The business jet, uh, again, thanks to the 84th Radar Evaluation Squadron, we believe that to be a Falcon jet. Uh, November 20 VF that was, it was at altitude coming up, uh, it was on a heading of about 030, uh, coming across the Pennsylvania border from Ohio and was vectored by air traffic control from altitude down to, and I'm going to memory here, but it seemed to me 8,000 feet, which would square with your recall. 
That airplane actually did one 360 loop just uh, just above the crash site, and at uh, at 10:14 Eastern Daylight Time, this would be 10 11 minutes after impact. It was immediately uh, at nine o'clock from uh, your left hand seat, which would have been, you said you were on the left hand side, right? Yeah, that aircraft would have been at uh, at uh, let me get my clock right. Would have been at nine o'clock if you looked out the window. And, and you think you saw him at about that time, perhaps? That's true. And you were not uh, then vectored to do anything else concerning uh, that crash, and you continued on and then landed uneventfully at Youngstown, Ohio. Uh, that's true. Uh, we got handed off, I believe, to another Cleveland Center controller shortly after that, and it was then that he was somewhat hesitant and asking us, um, you know, what we should be doing at that point. And I can't remember the exact terminology, but it was something to the effect. I'm not sure if I can ask you this. Can you tell me what you guys are doing? And I just, you know, basically relayed to him that we were an international guard aircraft heading back to Minneapolis. I think that he came back with something to the effect, well, I've been told to get all commercial aircraft on the ground, and you're a military aircraft, so, um, you know, you might want to check with your uh, folks and see, you know, what they want you to do. And so then I checked, uh, I looked at one of our navigational charts and saw that Youngstown, Ohio was the closest <clears throat> or to me, it appeared like it would be the best divert base if, in fact, we had to divert someplace because it was right on the nose. So, so I initiated contact with the uh, command post there at Youngstown, and uh, they gave us instructions to the effect that we should uh, land at their location there. As I listened to the uh, the tape from uh, the Cleveland controller, it seems like he was a bit challenging of you. He he knew that all, your, all our planes were supposed to be on the ground, and he was a bit. Uh, challenging of you of why you were even in the air. Do you recall that? Yeah, I don't recall if he was challenging us or if he was just uncomfortable with asking us. Uh, you know, and, and I thought back in hindsight that if he was, you know, he obviously must have had a strip on us just like every other controller has, you know, with basic information of departure point and destination. And, you know, my, my initial reaction was, well, if he saw us departing out of, out of Washington, D.C., out of Vanders Air Force Base at approximately the same time as um, the terrorist incident were taking place in New York and, and the Pentagon that we might be some kind of an evacuation airplane. And so it, that, that's the, uh, the, I guess, the uh, hesitancy I, I heard in his voice. Not so much a, a challenge as uh, he was somewhat uncomfortable even asking us what we were, you know, doing. And uh, when I relayed to him that uh, we were just an Air National Guard C-130 heading back to Minneapolis, that's when he made the recommendation that we should probably uh, contact uh, someone in our command and control to, you know, by this time in the Washington area and perhaps elsewhere, uh, Andrews Tower specifically and later uh, Dulles Tower uh, were making the following kinds of announcements at uh, 10.05 Eastern Daylight Time and at that point you would have been uh, just crossing, you would have just turned right uh, vectored to uh, 90, 90 right and crossing into Pennsylvania. Andrews Tower broadcast on guard that any airplanes violating Class B airspace would be shot down. And then about 10 minutes later at 10:15, there's a, a similar call from uh, Washington, or excuse me, Dulles Tower, uh, making the exact same pronouncement to all airplanes in the sky, any airplanes approaching Washington D.C. Do you recall hearing any of those uh, announcements on guard or any other frequency? Uh, no, I don't. And. Uh I hate to, uh, because it's been two and a half years, and I know you were playing back 
all the tape, but uh, and I could have, you know, I hate to say this, I could have imagined this after the fact, but when we were uh, initially told to uh, turn to the 270 heading, and I can't remember how many radio transmissions it was after this, I, I vaguely remember uh, one of the ATC guys saying that, you know, we had fast movers coming into the area, and that's why they needed us to get out, and I, the assumption I made was that if, in fact, this is a terrorist incident, uh, they didn't want to uh, you know, have the problem sorting out good guys from bad guys, and they just wanted all the airplanes they were talking to to vacate the area. And I, I don't know for sure if that was on the tapes or if they gave that to us, but I, I vaguely remember you know, remembering something about to that effect. And the announcements I referred to, we picked up on uh, uh, Washington area air traffic control towers, and I don't remember whether center uh, Washington Center put that out or not, they might have. But at the t that time, you were well within Cleveland Center's airspace, and I don't recall Cleveland doing that. And that's why I simply asked you if you you had heard a very precise announcement from any center or any tower uh, that you might be shot down if you went back to Washington. No, I, I don't recall hearing anything like that at all. Okay, and uh, let me just ask you squarely again, Colonel, uh, in reference to your proximity to the crash site of United 93 near Shanksville, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's a fact that you in no way, shape, or form were armed that day and you did not see any armed military aircraft, air defense fighters, or other aircraft that could have been involved in the downing of that aircraft. Uh, no, I didn't. Okay. And again, I thank you for that kind of precise statement because that will be very helpful to us. As I go back over your mission debriefing, there's just a couple of points I'd like to ask you about. And one, there was an inference that you were going to be or might have been interviewed by the FBI? Were you so interviewed? Uh, yes, we were. When we uh, arrived at Youngstown, Ohio, <laughs> I immediately uh, uh, asked to talk to the uh, senior ranking person at the base operations building there, and I believe it was the ops group commander that I talked to, but I couldn't uh, be for certain who that was right now, and basically told him that I think we need to go to some place and, and uh, discuss what we had seen. And at that point, uh, I think we did a real basic debrief with the intel folks at Youngstown, Ohio, the military intelligence uh, section at Youngstown. And then uh, it was shortly after that that they said that the Cleveland, uh, or I, I don't know if it was Cleveland, but they said that the FBI uh, wanted to come down and do a, uh, an interview with some of the crew members. And I thought they said they were coming home. And you recall where, where and when that interview was conducted? Uh, the interview was conducted uh, back in uh, the, in the base operations building there, I should say, back in, but I believe it was right in the uh, same intel, uh, the secure area inside the intelligence section at Youngstown that uh, the FBI interview was conducted. And that, that was on 911 and, and that afternoon then? That's affirmative. And uh, do you recall how long that interview was? Uh, no, I don't. I would just guess that it was about 15 or 20 minutes. And then uh, you use nomenclature that's interesting to me and that I'm not familiar with. And I'll just give you the, the nomenclature that you use and then maybe you tell me a little bit about it. And I think you're talking about m the modes on the airplanes and you talk about skip paint. Uh, that was a, a typo and I had commented uh, uh, it was interesting to read the uh, transcribed uh, transcript of the taped interview that was done. 
uh, by our folks here at the, the intelligence section of the 133rd because uh, that's actually meant to uh, say skin paint, S-K-I-N. That makes <laughs> that, that in other words, primary radar. That's for We have a, uh, a fairly sophisticated radar in the H3 model that uh, we hadn't had uh, prior to this. And it's got various modes in it. It's got a weather mode, and it's got a uh, ground mapping mode, and it's got one of the modes happens to be skin paint that we can uh, paint out to approximately 20 miles. Okay. Uh, primary targets, if, in other words, if the aircraft is made of metal, uh, we're going to pick it up on our radar. And then we have various uh, gates, uh, airspeed gates that we can set up to uh, eliminate slow moving traffic or fast moving traffic, whichever. And so uh, in this case here, typically. You can only go out 20 miles with that. Uh, that's for that's the maximum. If we're really uh, trying to, uh, you know, be very precise, uh, it's got lower uh, settings than that. We can get it all the way down to about a mile and a half, where about mm -hmm. from the bottom of the scope to the top of the scope is a mile and a half out. In its, in its final minutes, United uh, 93 was at uh, 8,000 feet and is. Uh, uh, altitude or, or altitude above ground, a problem for you on your skin capability? Well, it is a, uh, a beam of radar, so it's not, you know, it can't paint from the ground up to infinity or anything like that. And I'd have to get my tech order manual out to give you an exact, uh, uh, you know, how big the slice of air space it's looking at based upon a certain uh, distance uh, as far as the maximum range of the radar is concerned. It's not looking at a very wide Airspace, to my Do you recall then you never had United 93 on your TCAS or any kind of radar display? Uh, now refresh my memory. 93 was. It's, it's the uh, the plane that uh, crashed that you observed the smoke. Okay. Uh, no, that one we were not painting on skin paint, nor were we painting it on TCAS. Okay. Uh, Colonel, we've covered quite a few items today, and uh, based on my. Uh, Eight memoirs that I've given you in terms of uh, some of the radar reductions I have and the tapes you've listened to. Is there anything I haven't asked you about that I should know about uh, on your observations that day? Uh, no, I, I can't say as, uh, you've missed anything at all. It's interesting to, to listen to it again and uh, kind of relive it. It's, uh, it was my pleasure, Colonel, to be able to play back for you your own voice on that day. Uh, have you been uh, interested at some point in time if we were going to call you? Had I been interested in, I'm uh, sorry, I don't. Uh, uh, had you been interested or not in whether the 911 commission was going to reach out and talk to you? You know, I, it hadn't even really crossed my mind, although, uh, you know, every once in a while when I think it's finally died down, I'll get a request to, you know, do another interview or whatever, and so nothing really surprises yeah. me anymore. But it, it was uh, interesting to hear from the 911 commission because I, I didn't know how, you know, thorough they were going to be. And, uh, so, at any rate. And uh, your your specific assistance to us today is, as you're well aware, Colonel, the the public stories that are out about the day of 911 are loaded with myths and mythologies and incorrect uh, interpretations and uh, just just plain wrong stories out there. And part of it has to do with 
the ultimate fate of 77 and 93, and you are an eyewitness that day uh, in both instances, and your clear recollection is going to be extremely helpful to us, and we thank you for that. Well, good. I'm glad I was able to uh, help the commission out. Lisa, anything that... Uh, no, it's nice to hear the Minnesota accent, though. <laughs> <laughs> Why, are you from Minnesota? No, but it's a good friend of mine. Nice people in Minnesota. And we, we, uh, our family moved around a number of times, and we eventually wound up in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I didn't think that I picked up the accent at all. So oh, you definitely have. When people uh, comment, you know, then I say, well, yeah, sure, you betcha. We both, uh, Gopher. <laughs> Colonel O'Brien, thank you so much for your time today. Okay, I uh, enjoyed it very much, and uh, if you need anything else, I'll be more happy to help out. I will call you. Thank you again. Okay, you're welcome. Out here. Bye. Thank you.